Welcome to It's a Good Life podcast, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Top of the morning to you. Very excited. We have Dr. John Deloney back in the house today. We did a podcast about a month ago called Redefining Anxiety. One of my all-time favorite interviews I've ever done. I talked about his little quick one-day read book called uh, Redefining Anxiety. We've had phenomenal feedback from all of you. And we're so excited because today, Dr. John has a brand new book coming out called Own Your Past, Change Your Future. And I can tell you, as the chairman of the largest small business coaching company in the world, the amount of times we've had to help somebody reconcile their past so they could build their business in the future, this is kind of like standard operating procedure inside our coaching business. And of course, John would write a book on the subject. And so, John, we're delighted to have you back again. We love your work. We've had fantastic feedback from your last interview, and we're excited to hear about your new book. So, Thanks for pumping out the work, bro. Thanks for the new book. Man, you are a saint, my brother. It's, it's, I'm grateful, grateful, grateful. Thank you. Well, uh, we're excited. Uh, I love the title. I'm very aware of this context. Again, we get it all the time. I, I, I'll, I'll dive in. I'm going to tell a story here. Come on in. Let's do it. A basic story of how we're trying to coach somebody and how to own the past to change the future, to set the table for what we're going to talk about. So we have a gal comes to us. She's 25 years in the real estate business. And every year, whether she works hard or doesn't really work hard, she kind of hits the same sales total. Around $5 million in sales a year, about $120,000, $130,000 in income, gross commission, which she gets to take home about half of that, right? And so every year, she gets the same number. Every year, she gets the same response. So she signs up for coaching. And of course, she gets this new coach. She gets this new system. And the coach starts, you know, sharing with her what to do. They have a coaching appointment every two weeks. And got to show up with your homework done. And she's a homework type gal. And sure enough, her business starts blowing up, like blowing up in a way she's never experienced before. And then about three, four months into this, the coach is watching these patterns show up. And this gal is literally sabotaging herself. She is literally blowing up her own business, her own schedule, finding ways to sabotage herself to actually artificially create this dynamic where she's going to go right back to 5 million in sales and about 120,000 in income because she was almost at the 5 million in sales in the first 90 days of coaching. So the coach is working with her, coach is working with her, and it took months to create that safe space, as you would well know, in some form of counseling environment. And finally, it comes out. And this is what I love about coaching. She goes, I'm just not a good enough wife. I'm not a good enough mom. And she goes, well, what do you mean? Where is that coming from? So her mom, from a different era, by the way, was Betty Crocker. Her mom never had a job outside the home. That was the role. Her mom baked her own bread, you know, made dresses. The house was always perfectly together. The food was always properly prepared. Everything's done. And and this gal's coming home late at night sometimes with the pizza under her arm and this and that and the other and the washing's built up and whatever else. And so she's, you, you, right, you, I mean, you can fill it out in from here, right? You, you've, you've, you know that this is probably why the book is written. Oh, yeah, man. So the coach comes along and goes, <laughs> hey, okay, we understand it, we get it. Why don't you get a house cleaner to come in once a week? And I'm going to tell you, it was like, why don't you take heroin once a week? Why, why don't you, 
<laughs> just try that just just once a week. And it was this siege to go <laughs> right. through this. Well, finally, it took months to do this. And she gets, she gets this gal to come in once a week on Wednesday because the coach figures out what's the worst day. When do you feel like a biggest failure? Well, the washing is all piled up and then this is all that. So she gets to come in Wednesday. And then she comes in Friday. And the husband starts going, hey, this is great. I'm loving this. This is awesome. Anyway, at the end of the day, she's paying a gal to come in and help her with the housework and so on and so forth five days a week. She quintuples her business and then doubles it the following year. Her husband eventually comes to work for her and quits the job he hates. Now they're working together. Now she's building a business. She's going to pass on to her generation. Her kid wants to, you know, he's 25 years of age. He's being mentored to take over the business. And it's this wild success story. And it started with, I'm not enough, a good enough mom. I'm not a good enough wife because I have this standard set that I haven't made peace with of my mom is the perfect mom and I'm the imperfect one. And I'm actually letting down the side by going to work every day. And I just wanted to throw that out because people are always working hard and fighting hard for performance. And I got a coach and I got this and I did that. And I'm going to the seminars and I'm trying to lose weight and I'm getting finances or whatever they're trying to change in their life. And sometimes they just got to own the past. And so that's my little segue for the work that you're doing here. I love it, man. Thank you. I love your work, and I think this is right up your alley. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the whole concept of owning your past to change the future. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example where somebody's going to look at, you know, you've got to go backwards so you can go forwards. The challenge is that a lot of people do that in their businesses. They won't do it in their marriages, and they won't do it in their parenting, and they won't do it with why they're so angry at the Little League game. And so all of this stuff comes from a collective body. And you and I talked about this a little bit in the last time we were together, a collective body of stories. There's a set of stories that we're born into. And these are the ones that our church passes along to us. This idea that that the woman you mentioned in the story, this is just what mom looks like. It's a picture of mom. And anything not in that picture is wrong. It's incorrect. It's less than. And we don't even realize that we're downloading those pictures into our minds. They just are, right? And then we have the stories that we're told. Those, you know, and it can be everything from, can you believe that so-and-so Susie down the street, that she doesn't make dinner every night for her family? And those are the stories aren't even about us, but they download into, oh, this is what a wife and mom does. And then there's the more insidious ones that are, oh, honey, when an 11-year-old girl comes down the stairs, that shirt makes you look pudgy. And you don't, you want the boys to think you're pretty, right? And Boy, you want boys to like you, right? And he's like, yeah, of course, mom. Let's go change that shirt. Little bitty things that the only way to get somebody to like you is if you look right. And we carry those stories. And then this is where it gets insidious, Brian, is over time, the stories we're told by our church, by our community, by our government, and the churches were told, the stories were told by our uncle about what our body's worth or our coach who lifted us, whatever. Those stories become the stories we tell ourselves. And there's a lot of great research about how most of us think we're better than average at just about everything. We trust our voice. And when we start telling ourselves, oh, I can see my reflection in the mirror. I'm not attractive. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at being a mom as my mom was. I'm not very good at parenting. Or my kid just sucks because it's their fault. Whatever. Then you start telling your stories yourself in, in your own voice. And that's when you get that limiting factor that this is just the way we are. This is the way I am. This is, quote unquote, the way things are going to be. And you're saying the research is we listen to our own voice the most. Oh, we think we are 
I don't say we, we, I don't know. I haven't checked out that research. I'm saying that when we hear ourselves in our own voice, we trust it because we think we are the most trustworthy person in our world. Right. So when we say negative things to ourselves. Oh, we believe them. You know, I did work 20 years ago with Dr. Shad Helmstetter, who wrote a book, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself. What a brilliant concept, man. Beautiful. Shad Helmstetter, and this is back in the 80s, he was a linguist. He taught people how to learn other languages. And he could do it quicker and faster than most people, and he developed little techniques and so on and so forth. And he started realizing the things that people actually say to themselves. And sure enough, he had this massive hundreds of thousands of people who lost weight after they read the book. They didn't exercise differently. They didn't eat differently. They just started saying things differently to themselves. Now, it's not, it's not voodoo. You can't eat crap and not that's exercise right, right. and whatever else. But let me, hey, let me tell you why that's important. When our body, and this is the part that gets left out of the conversation, and, and Chad stumbled into this in a brilliant way. When our body detects that I'm not being a good mom, it has a cascade of physiological chemicals that surges through its body to try to solve its problem. And those chemicals keep us stressed and fried and cooked. And when I think I'm being less than a dad, when I think my kid isn't performing on the ball field in a way that's going to make me look bad, then I feel out of step with my tribe. My body goes, oh, we can't be out of step. And how does that come out? Rage, anger, frustration, exhaustion, all... And so these things aren't just thoughts. They have a consequence in our bodies. And we pass them on to our kids, and they pass them on to their kids. And these stuff roll downhill through generations, man. Well, I've, I've had six very active athletic kids, you know, who played multiple sports. And, you know, being at all these ball games and so on and so forth, and you hear that totally freaked out parent who's transitioning their own frustrations and insecurity, right, screaming at the kid because they're going, that's not me. That's not me. You know, that kid just dribbled the ball off his leg. And I'm screaming at that kid, but I'm really not screaming at that kid because of the kid. I'm screaming at that kid because of me. And, you know, there's five steps in your book to really outline this. And we started with the first one is owning your own stories. I'd love you to kind of go through those five steps to really help people own their past to change their future. If we could spend a few minutes on that. Uh, you got it, man. And I, I think it's important to note, Brian, few things on earth do I hate more than reductive Seven yep. steps to lose weight and four steps to, you know, get taller. Um, so these things work kind of on an infinity loop and you hop in and out of them. They're not linear and you don't do this one so you can do this one. But you got to own these stories. You just got to take ownership. Ask yourself, where's my picture of mom? And can I, I want to do one real thing real quick before we jump into this. We often, this is from William Glasser, a famous psychiatrist from back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. We often think in pictures, but we speak in words. I'll say that again. We think in pictures, but we speak in words. What does that mean? I have a picture of what a good wife is, a good, loving, supportive wife. And my wife has a picture of a good and supportive wife in her head. And the problem comes in, not that she doesn't love me and I don't love her, is I say, I need you to be more loving and supporting. And she says, I'm on it. I will be more loving and more supporting. And what does she do? She makes the picture in her head come alive. And it's different than what I need. Because she thinks I need to make this place even cleaner and cook even more meals. And I'm thinking, I just want you to wear sweats and let's watch seven episodes of The Office again, right? And what we have to do is we got to paint a new picture, right? And so when you are struggling, when you find those, you got to own your stories. Ask yourself, who put this picture of mom or parenting or right and wrong. Where did I get those stories? The second one is I've got to acknowledge reality, right? I've got to be honest. And we don't do well with this in our culture, right? 
I've got to be honest and say, this is what I hope to be, and this is where my life is, right? And we don't do a good job of that. We love to blame. We love to run around. And sometimes blame is warranted, and then I'm going to say, and then what, right? So you were hurt. That uncle did abuse you. That coach did bench you for no reason. You were treated differently because of the color of your skin. So kind of crazy. You were treated terrible. And then what? And here we are right now. So you got to own reality. And Brian, that takes grief. We got to grieve that sometimes. We have to forgive, which is hard. We've got to have some, there's some processes there. And then what am I going to do? No life change in the world. Period. Bar none. And this is this is the scientific literature all over the place. No life change of any sort that is sustainable can happen by yourself. I'm a Texan who grew up in Houston. I, and I spent the back half of my life in Lubbock, Texas, where... Preach it, brother. Preach it. We grew the cows and raised them that we were supposed to make the bootstraps out of that I'm supposed to pull myself up by. I get it. You cannot do life by yourself, period. And then once you are connected and you have a community of people that can walk alongside you, that might be one person. It might be a professional for a season. I, all I can have, the only person I can talk to is a counselor. Great. Or a coach. Great. I'm going to call Brian's coaches and just... Great. Then I'm going to be about changing my thoughts. And we don't know that we can change our thoughts, and you can, absolutely. And I'm going to change my actions. Those are the only two things on planet Earth I can control, my thoughts and my actions, period. And I'm going to do this over and over and over again. Because right when you get it, that's when mom calls and says, I got cancer. Or that's when your car falls apart or whatever happens. And so you're going to do this over and over again. You know, it's interesting you say it. Like 26 years ago, I had a decision to make. You know, I had mentors and people I really admired, people who changed my life, the Zig Ziglers and the Jim Rohns and all these phenomenal presenters and speakers and Og Mandino and all these brilliant people. And I so immersed myself for about 10 years in this stuff, changed my thoughts, changed my actions, transformed myself from the immigrant Irishman to this successful guy in, in the American system. And then I got opportunities to come and share and I was invited to speak and so on and so forth. And I would go and I would speak at these real estate conferences and there'd be standing ovations and all that stuff. And I'd come away and I realized and I'd follow up with some people and nothing would change. Like they had the greatest experience. They were all in. They wanted it so bad. And I realized like I couldn't do this. Like I had opportunities then to do the speaking and it wasn't enough for me. Standing ovations weren't my currency. They, and there's nothing wrong with those. There's a grace. People want to show their appreciation. But for me, it had to be tangible, which is six months, a year from now, I wanted to see some kind of change. And I made a choice. And I have the same accounting firm today that I had 26 years ago. And the lead accountant said to me, look, you can go into business and you can speak and do the books and do the cassettes and do all that stuff, which at the time was from my warehouse to yours. That was the business, right? And he says, you'll make a lot more money that way. You'll have a small amount of staff. If there's corrections in the market, if there's recessions and whatever else, You'll be able to handle downturns better and you'll be much more prosperous. And my wife and I, you know, my bride doesn't say very much when she does, it packs a punch. And she's like, what is it you feel you're supposed to do? And I said, supposed to be in the transformation. It's impact and improve the lives of people. And I said, I can impact them from stage, but it's not enough. If we're going to improve them, we need to build all the training and the coaching and the this and that. And, the other. and it was. And looking back at it now, I have speakers. I've had a hundred speakers come through our facility and they look at it and I tell them, you know, just so you know, this is not for the faint of heart. We're happy to help you. If you want to build something like this, we will help you. But it's a brutal deal. But I had to have the impact. And the only way the impact could happen is that people had to get connected. People had to get connected. 
And once you're connected, then that lays the groundwork, I believe, to change your thoughts. Then the input, then the podcasts and the books and the training and the this. And you can. And, it, you know, garbage in, garbage out. We never have the opposite, which is good stuff in, good stuff out. And then once you change the thoughts, look, the mind directs the body. Once you change the thoughts, you can change the actions. And I know this to be true. You know, owning your own stories. I mean, from the coaching perspective, and our coaches are going to be listening to these podcasts. I'm going to get a copy of your book for every one of my coaching staff because this is the formula. I don't have the PhDs for it. Hey, you've got 30 years. you got way more experience, man. You're in it. Yeah, well, it's just rolling up our sleeves, doing it, getting dirt under our fingernails, but owning your own stories. Like I said, that gal, it didn't matter what we gave her or what motivation she got or what seminar she listened to or how many pumped up Brian Buffini events or anyone else she went to. The whole time she's thinking, I'm not a good mom because I don't fit the picture. I had to own the story, acknowledge the reality. The reality is, you know what? Your arms and legs aren't going to fall off if you actually bring someone in to help you out. <laughs> try it a little bit. Try it on a Wednesday. Then try it on a Wednesday, Friday. Guess what? Everybody kind of likes it. And then do it all week. Then she got connected to a coach, to a community. And she found out there was a whole bunch of people just like her who'd smashed through the same image and had gone on. Yes. Then putting yes. the input in. That gal's been in our coaching program 20 years now. Wow. And think about the downstream effect your connectivity to her has been for her family, for those that she does business with. She's become, a, right? So she's a part of generational change. And now her awesome. son is taking over their business. And so, I, you know, that's and, the coach. And that's the old, that's the great Terry Real quote. Gen, these, these generational traumas go generation, go down the line until somebody has the courage to turn and face it like a forest fire and say, not on my watch, I'm done. And that person gets burned and they get scars and everybody who comes after them's life is different because they did that. Her kid, her son will have a different life because she turned and said, no more. Right. It's incredible. I believe the hardest part of this, and again, I, I get the loop and you're right, you know, it's not five quick, easy steps in 90 days, you're good to go. But the hardest part of all of this to me is point number one and owning our own stories because Tough, man. Separating fact from fiction. Yeah. Because these are things we've come to believe. You know, I'm heavy because I've got big bones, yeah. you know, or, right? And there is, there's genetics involved. And, you know, I got family members who struggle with a lot of weight and this and that and the other. And, you know, so it's, it's real stuff. Right. But it's not the only part of the story. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit of that, how to go about owning your own story. I think it comes back to this idea of, can you just look at your life the way it is? and is this what you're looking for? And most of us are chasing a thing and we spend all of our life running towards a thing and we miss our whole life in pursuit of it. And so I always like, just stop for a second. Just stop and look around. Are you all right? And if you're not all right, why? Just be honest with yourself. And what are you contributing to your challenge? And we're going to just peel it back layer by layer by layer. I think all of the stories... I think of them like a brick in a in a backpack, right? So we're all born with a backpack, and um, you, you you can't write a book without an, a, an analogy, right? So I think we're all born with a backpack. We're carrying these bricks around. Some of these bricks are trauma. Some of these are giant cinder blocks, and they get dropped into your backpack. As it uh, as an immigrant, you come to a country, you don't really know the customs, the language. In fact, I think it's tough as an Irish because the language is sort of the same, but it's enough different to where. <laughs> You no, know I mean? we, we were speaking a language a thousand years before you people. Listen, country, listen. So. <laughs> well played. So you come to a place where we've bastardized your language and ruined it for you. Yeah, exactly. And 
Yeah. But you got these cinder blocks in your backpack, and then you are a salesperson. Let's say you're doing real estate, and every day you're talking to people who have dreams, and you have to help modify that dream and change that dream, and you see marriage dynamics, and you see sadness, and they don't get approved from the loan, and they got outbid. You're picking up other people's secondary trauma, and those little pebbles in your backpack add up, add up, add up. And whether it's a backpack full of pebbles or a backpack full of two cinder blocks, the weight over time is the same. And so I want people to think about their stories like these bricks in their backpack. The first thing you got to do to deal with these stories, how to own them, is to sit down and open up that backpack and start asking yourself, where did I get this story? Where did I get that story from? I can't really understand what I, I need a friend in here to come. Y'all help me look in this backpack and find out where did I get this idea? Here's an example from my life. My sister is a savant. She's smarter than me, 10X. My little brother missed like two questions on the ACT, something ridiculous. And then there was me. I was like the athlete, just the loudmouth idiot that wanted to be a heavy metal singer. And in third grade... Did you have a mullet? Did you have that whole thing going on? Oh, I had the front. I, I'm, oh. I'm, ten, I'm after the mullet. So I had the front bangs. That was so cool. But I also was on the football team, so we had to keep them short. So, I, dude, I was all kind of <laughs> schizophrenic. So... Um, I got asked to uh, take the test for the gifted and talented program in third grade, Brian, third grade. This is how ridiculous this is. I took the exam. I didn't get in. And in my head, in my house, grades were very, very important. I had a brilliant sister, savant little brother. I finished up my second PhD. And within six months, I started thinking, I wonder if, you know what I really am interested in? And I started thinking about studying something else. Why? I'm chasing a narrative that is 30-something years old that you're not smart enough. And if you're not smart enough, then mom and dad aren't good. My mom read a draft of this book, and she called me and wept and said, I'm so sorry you felt like that. We were so proud of you. And I had to say, Mom, that wasn't your story. I don't know where I got it. i just been carrying it around for so long. But it's when my wife said, John, what are you trying to prove after the second PhD that I finally said, where, where, what am I running from? And I... Drew a straight line all the way back to third grade, Brian. How embarrassing is that, right? Yeah. So here's a guy with two PhDs, but he buys in the story. I mean, I would tell you, you know, two applications of that for me. One is I'm in school. I don't have great handwriting. Now, I'm the guy who mm. writes personal notes, and I tell people to write personal notes. My brothers used to say my handwriting looked like a spider dipped its butt in ink and walked across the page. Right? <laughs> so I go to the Christian Brothers School in Ireland, which was the public school, and I have a priest tell me, you're not very creative. You know, you need to stay away from anything creative. And the reason is I didn't have good handwriting and I wasn't much of an artist. Like I couldn't paint a picture or draw anything. And so because of that, I wasn't creative. Mm. Now, my work the last 20 years, I've created maybe eight or 900 separate presentations. You know, it's easy to have one talk and go to 100 different audiences. We create new talks all the time and training programs and this and I do events and Everything around me in this studio and everything I do is creative, creative, creative. But for a long time, I was told I wasn't creative. And I bought into that until I found out one day that where someone came to me and said, I read a book and it said, if you're able to solve a problem, that's the ultimate creativity. And I went, well, man, I I solve problems all day long. I'm in the real estate business. Another one that was an interesting one, and I'll tell this one's a little more personal. It's art. That's right. But, uh, you know, you're in a family of six. And again, you go back a generation and how parenting was done and there weren't all these books and shows and whatever else. And my dad says to me one day, and now I look at it and I realize my dad was passing me a compliment, but it was a compliment that hugely affected me (laughs) because I built a huge story around it. 
And he says to me, and I was maybe 12 or 13 years of age, well, you're the one I don't have to worry about. And when he said that, he was like, you're going to make it, kid. You're going to be successful. That's what he meant. He didn't fill in the blanks for me. But he said, oh, you're the one I don't have to worry about. And what happened is the way I interpreted that as a 12 or 13-year-old is I'm on my own. And so from the time I was 13 years of age, I've never taken another cent from my father again. Like I paid for everything. I worked two to three jobs throughout high school because I'm on my own. I would never go to him for anything because I'm on my own. Mm. And I found this out throughout my life and it kept showing up over and over again. Now, he said to me, you're the one I don't have to worry about. He meant it in his own way as a compliment. What does that mean? Let me say how it showed up. It showed up for decades in regards to I would burn myself out because I'm on my own. You know, and you can find things then to confirm it, right? So I love all the personal, right? I love all the personal growth stuff. And here's Napoleon Hill. If it is to be, it's up to me. Well, there's a good phrase about that. And there's a terrible thing about that. You know, when I developed spiritually, you know, I became on fire for my relationship with God. But I found myself over time when I was really up against the wall, I didn't depend on God. I depended on myself. Why? Because I'm the one he doesn't have to worry about. And it turned out I really wanted to be one they worried about, which meant I'm concerned about you. I love you. And so it was over time, a series of discussions with my wife, where she said to me, you know, you're such a loner. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I never spend time by myself. She goes, you're a loner because you always think you're the only one who can do it. And so some of these stories are so deep. Like, I would never have gotten to that by myself. And we talked about in, in our last interview in, in Redefining Anxiety, you know, about coming alongside people. And you were talking about a friend of yours who went through a tough time. And you ask him to write out his stories. And then you're this independent third party talking through it with him and going, yeah, no, that one, that one might be true. But this one... This one doesn't seem to be, this one seems to be a story. Like it's a story you're telling yourself. And I would say, I don't believe human beings are designed to do life alone. I don't believe we can work these stories out by ourselves because we, and by the way, as a salesperson, you're very talented at telling stories. So when you tell yourself a story, you really package it well. Especially the ones you tell yourself, right? Right, right. And so there's an example just from my own past. It led me to a lot of stress. I had all kinds of help around me that I didn't lean into. And I had a friend one time, his name was Joe Ehrman, and he said, you know, the graveyard's full of people, and on the headstone it says, nobody can do it like me. Wow. And that's where I was at. So I find this work you're doing to be so profound. I do believe the first step is very hard. It's meant to be hard. I think it's meant to be hard. Just like the life is supposed to be good, and it's good and hard, I think... It's it's ongoing too, Brian. Like, I I wish I had, you know, I used to train MMA and... I like, I, I, my dad was a, you know, SWAT guy. Like, I like to think I'm tough and all, but in my bag right there, and it's a rucksack bag. It's a designed by military guys to carry heavy stuff, right? In that bag is a small journal called my stories journal that I carry with me everywhere. And now it's become a regular practice when I'm driving. This happened the other day and it was a riot, except it wasn't my daughter I'm trying to teach, like, so I will always want to hug my kids. And I know I've read the scholarship about touching your kids, skin, skin contact with the children. My daughter is six and she has learned that if dad likes it, I can weaponize it. Right. And <laughs> so I'm also, so I started saying like, Hey, you will hug me. I'm your dad. And then I realized, Oh no, I'm teaching you that if you want, 
body autonomy that some man can come in and say, no, 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 I, what I want for, with your body is more important than what you want. So I said, I'm, I'm going to stop doing that. So I'm walking by at 530 in the morning. She got up super early. And I'm heading out to go work out. And I kissed her on the forehead and said, good morning, baby. And she shook her little blonde hair all over the place. And this is what she said, Brian. This is a quote. I wish you never existed. And my wife comes over the table and she says, no, man, we don't talk to each other in this house like that. And she said, all he ever tells me is that I'm brilliant and beautiful. I'm sick of it. I can't live like this anymore. She is six, Brian. And so listen, like I, my eyes got wide. I don't know where she got this. We're pathological about screens. In our, anyway, she, in, she inhaled this from somewhere. I walked outside and you know, the first thought in my head is, of course you do. Cause you suck at being a dad. Cause I've been on the road. I've been traveling, speaking everywhere. And the first thought I had was to, she's reacting. Cause you're an idiot. Not, Hey, she's six. And we don't let six year olds buy beer or buy guns <laughs> or buy, or because they're six. Right. <laughs> yeah. My response was, you know, you're exactly right. And I should probably, you know what I mean? And so I took this personal, I carried this around for a few days and I wrote it in the journal. You suck at being a dad. And then when the emotion had worn off, when my body had stopped reacting, then I could look at that and say, is this true? And the answer is absolutely unequivocally. No, I'm a great dad. I'm dealing with a six year old at five 30 in the morning. Right. And now I can go about my day and I'm not going to let that become a 30 year narrative for me. Yeah, we don't negotiate with terrorists at my home. And, uh, <laughs> It's one of our standard policies. I like it. Uh, sometimes it would be uh, weaponized too. I I brought you into this world. I can take you out and make another one look just like just you. Just like you. So that's that was right. that was the default position, you know. But you know, that's right. That's I'll right. do more on my parenting one later on. You know, I'll bring Beverly on. She rounds me out. Look, it's critical stuff. It's big stuff. And so here's the last little piece to the puzzle. We were talking about in redefining anxiety with the clickbait and the world we're living in today, and how the social media and all that stuff is designed to exaggerate it. I believe in our culture today, the stories get exaggerated. So I was doing a bunch of research because people were leaving the state of California en masse, and I was trying to find the migration patterns and so on and so forth for research purposes. So I was going on Google, I was going on YouTube, I was looking around to see where the data was. Well, guess what happens? They feed you more of what you're searching for. And so next thing you know, here's all these stories and all these interviews and everything else. And by the way, everything that came up on YouTube was California sucks. It falls <laughs> off the end of the world. Here's the interviews with the scientists. Here's the interviews with the economists. Here's the homeless problem. Here's the this problem. Here's the tax problem. Here's where it's going. And here's the thing. I started out as a research project for my clients so I could give them some insight. And about 90 days into this, I had to realize I was like ready to move. That's right. You're smoking cigarettes and mainline and whiskey. Like, like, we got to put our properties right? on the market. This place is going to hell in a handbasket. Until I realized this, and this is the added danger. You know, we have more money than we've ever had in our life, in our culture. We have less of the food, shelter, clothing problems that humanity's ever had. We're more stressed out, more fearful, more anxious than ever. And I believe it's this, that now the stories are weaponized technologically. So you can search for something. You could go online that night and go, why I suck as a dad. Or you could Google something. My daughter just said this, she hates me. And you could find yourself in a black hole that would reconfirm that position, give you stories in that position, and all you'd get is Google searches, YouTube searches. I mean, we know this. This is the science behind it. I mean, there's programs on Netflix that show 
the tech companies no longer even apologize for any of this. They're just out and about and say, we're going to give you more of what you have. And that's why positions become more extreme. It's happening with politics. It's happening with religion. It's happening with everything. And so now we have not only the stories we tell ourselves, but technologically, you could have gone down into a wormhole and convinced yourself in 90 days that it's fatal, that your daughter's going to grow up to be an axe murderer or whatever else. And so that's why we need this community. We need to connect. We need the stories. We need to change our thoughts. We need to change our actions. And it's mission critical. And I think the book is timely. And I would like one last little tweak from you here. If you were to give, you're talking to your best friend and you'd walk them through the five steps. At the end of the day, what people really want is to change their future. Ultimately, what would be the best advice you could give somebody on here's how they could change their future in the future? I think you, I'm going to push us to to that second step there. Grief is a, um, we live in a culture that has pathologized anything other than anxiety and depression. Those are the only words we have, anxiety and depression, anxiety and depression. And I used to have students that would come into my office and say, hey, my, my granddad just passed away. My mom just packed up and left my dad. Um, I've got depression. And I used to say, no, you're sad. You're supposed to be sad. And we have complete, anything that doesn't feel great, we've pathologized and tried to solve for it. I really want people to sit for a minute in, I hoped my life would look like this. And it looks like this. All grief is, is the gap between what we hoped or wished would happen or we thought would happen and what actually happened. That's it. That could be as little as, uh, man, I really wanted to get a burger tonight and she said we have to go eat Mexican food. I just need to sit on that for one second and go, man, I really wanted a burger. And now we're going to get Mexican food. Your body will try to solve for that grief over and over, year after year after year. So if I've got a buddy who's really struggling, I'm going to say, where did you think you were going to be, man? Like, what were you hoping for? I was hoping my wife and our marriage would feel like this after kid three. But we haven't slept together in six months. We don't even sleep in the same room anymore. I've put on 30 pounds. I thought, I had a picture in my head of I thought this was going to, what it was going to look like, and it doesn't. And I, I would say, good, sit in it and grieve it. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm sad it didn't, it didn't turn out the way I hoped. And then here's the magic, because our culture says, stop there. You're a victim. Somebody screwed up. You got to just sit there or they tell you. And sometimes, th- sometimes therapy that's says right. that. And it's, and, ugh, oh man, don't get me started on modern therapy. We can do a whole other thing on that. And then there's the other side of the equation that has tried to revolt against this side, which is you have no feelings. None of that matters. Grind it, crush it, kill it, and just go ahead. And there's a third way, dude. It is, you got to feel this stuff. Whatever happened to you in the past, what happened to you in the future, what happened to you, what you did, all of it. Grieve it, and then the magic is, what are you going to do now? And that's where we get stuck, is we say, I'm powerless to help us. I'm on a track, a train that it, it left the station, and I can't do anything about it, and I'm calling nonsense on all of it. What are you going to do now? And that's the magic. What do you want with your one tiny, wild, precious life? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to sit there and weep it away? Or are you going to say, nope, today everything changes. And all that starts with that grief. It starts with forgiveness. It starts with those it's really spiritual practices that we've kind of thrown away and said, let's solve this with a pill and move on with our lives. So we can get to the quote unquote real stuff. And I'm going to tell you, this is the real stuff. And then brother Brian, you get into, man, I got to change how I talk to people. And if I find myself angry at the driver in front of me, I'm not going to give myself a heart attack over something that probably has nothing to do with me. So I'm going to start 
dealing with my anger or my rage or my workaholism or my alcoholism or my pornography addiction or whatever I'm trying to do to distract myself from the life that I'm living currently, I'm going to be fully present in my life. And then I'm going to begin about changing my thoughts, man. Magical stuff. I have a feeling we're going to be talking some more, my friend, because, you know, we had a whole bunch of people listening to you and I having a great chat here today. And I'm learning a lot. You got a great heart for this. It's so authentic. It's so necessary. It's so real. I love your work. I love what you're doing. You know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, can you turn off one Netflix show and get a copy of Own Your Past and Change Your Future? And there's one change you just made. And you get a chance to have understanding. You know, you started with this about being gracious and being honest and you know, going through that. And I just think this is the stuff that helps. You know, I came to America and I didn't know anything from anything. You know, I was 19 years of age, had this motorcycle accident, owed a bunch of money, and I was trying to assimilate to this brand new culture. I was a stranger in a strange land. And I got exposed to a walk of faith, which was great. I got to meet my bride, which has been magnificent. But ultimately, those two foundations met with all of this insight from people who'd been there and done that. And I just became a guy that read and listened. And that ultimately transformed everything for me. And I believe you're on the cusp of something. I think it's right where people are. I think we did the podcast on redefining anxiety because it's right where people are, especially coming out of the last couple of years we've just had. And there now you go. the deeper you aspect go. of owning your past so that you can change your future. Not just, right? It's not own your past so you can understand it is good, wallow in it, Love not it. good, Love it. so that Love you it. can change your future. And that's where this whole ownership comes in. And I get it. I love it. I'm so excited. Uh, your book is coming out today. It's everywhere. Great books are sold. Own your past, change your future. Let me say this, John Deloney, you are helping a lot of people in deep ways, in a broad manner. We're really, really, really excited to spend time with you. We look forward to having you on again, and maybe we'll even hornswoggle you to come out to some of our events and, and make a little presentation. We'll get you out when you're, when you're not too busy. Maybe we'll see if we can we can work that out with you. But uh, just appreciate you, appreciate your work, and thanks for taking the time with us. It's really been a blessing. Thank you, Brother Brian. Again, such a, you're a gift, and I'm grateful for you. Thank you. I'm glad we're best friends now. Yep, it's a good life. It's a good life. Okay, my friend. Well, we're going to finish up today's show. I'm going to finish it in a way that uh, someone's helped change my future because the words I heard my whole life growing up is I was given this inheritance from my mother because she'd say this to me, you can do it, Briny. You can do it, Briny. And my whole life, that was one of the things she gave me. And that was one of the positive stories I heard. And it turned out to be true. And it's still true for the future that's out in front of me. And we'll finish our show today with my mother's giving us all an Irish blessing. I want to thank you again, John. I'll bless all you guys. If you want to hear more stuff from John Deloney, you want to hear more content like this, let us know. Send us an email. Reach out. Do a review. We'd love to hear from you. Till next time, God bless. And I'll leave you to hear from me, Mother Therese. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. Music